Hello, everyone. This is Sal from the Cryptocurrency Informer. Welcome to our podcast. Our guest today is Trek, a consultant, writer, public speaker, podcast host, and storyteller for the world of crypto and blockchain technology. He's also head of Trek Smart Consulting, a firm that focuses on crypto and blockchain clients. Trek, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Of course, of course. And so can you give us a bit more background about yourself, how you got into this space, where you started? Just tell us about yourself. All right. So I don't think I have the typical story, but it's not necessarily like really off the wall crazy or anything like that. So in New York, in the tri-state area, there was a uh, there's a radio station called WBAI. There was a show that used to um, be on it called Off the Hook. If you're a cypherpunk person, you know about this show. I'm not saying I'm a coder or a white hat or a black hat or by any stretch of the imagination, but I used to always listen to this show. It was like my religious thing to do when I lived in New York uh, when I was younger. And this is like 2011-ish or 2012. All I remember was they said there's this thing called Bitcoin. It was internet money. And I instantly just thought of like, wait, so you're telling me that Star Wars, the Federation credits and like Babylon 5, like credits is going to be real. Like that was the first thing that popped into my head. (laughs) And I didn't do anything at the time when I first heard about that, because I don't even remember what the rest of the episode was about. It was just that one part that stuck out to me the most. End of 2012-ish, going into, what is that? 2013, somewhere around there. I finally like, as they say, got skin in the game. I got my first little amount of um, Bitcoin. I have found, how did I do my first one? It's been so long. Like I even lost that wallet already. So I couldn't even tell you what it probably could be right now. Yeah, right. I mean, that's like one of those things that if you find it, you know, you find (laughs) an old hard drive or something like that, it's got it in there. Bro, that was so many phones back and (laughs) not doing the due level of diligence as to where I am now about stuff didn't even occur to me to like truly safeguard all of the, the things that give you access to it. But nonetheless, that's my starting period. I go through X amount of the up and down with everybody else. I wasn't a Mount Gox person. I learned kind of early on. I wasn't a trader. I wasn't a minor person. What I call the four elements of being in the crypto space. I never had aspirations to be the dev, which I call the fourth element within the um, crypto space. And then I did what we were talking about back then. I was spending it. I was using it as currency. Mm -hmm. I'm going to buy this trip. I'm going to... Um, If I need to, well, I definitely needed to when 2018 came in and how that whole winter played out. At 2017, after my second deployment, I looked to leave what I was doing in defense contracting. And I didn't want to deal with that career um, trajectory anymore. I had my whole thing planned out for that on how I was going to have my military run parallel with my, quote, civilian work that was in defense contracting. And I just totally went left on that at the end of 2017. And 2018, after X amount of like planning and doing some talk with an expat who was over in Eastern Europe, who he was also in the space. And he was like, yeah, you know, you should look into being a smart contract dev. And Hmm. being me and curiosity, and I'm a person who believes information is always out there. It's just a matter of you got to take the time and the effort to like search it out. And so I looked for all the different courses to find. I was going to be a self-taught smart contract dev. Let's say eight months later, it did not pan out at all how I thought it would. The market was crazy red. (laughs) Talk about catching the fall at night for 2018. Oh my goodness. I had that issue. Hodling is a horrible, horrible (laughs) long-term investment strategy. 2018 taught me that the real hard way. I mean, you and everybody else, right? Yeah, me and everybody else. But Not necessarily everyone else did what I call actually live in the space. There's a handful of folks, I would say, in that 2017 to 2018 period who really said, I live in this space. I'm doing my whole life around, you're going to pay me in crypto for stuff. I'm going to do things that get me paid in crypto and I'll pay for stuff in crypto. There's a handful of folks. And then when 2018 was playing out the way it was, you started seeing a lot of, a good enough number of people started jumping shit. Okay, and it went back to let me get that W-2 job because it's a more safer, um, secure space. People started getting like disillusioned. Yes. Yes. Because it became so mainstream at like the end of 2017. Everybody was talking about Bitcoin. And then 2018, when it started like tanking, everybody was like, all right, screw this. This is not a safe 
investment. I don't want to be in this endeavor anymore. And that was a lot of like the mainstream, I feel like, opinion, right? Yes, yes, for sure. But all right, we talk about like the whole like, you know, the crypto bug bit me kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say that initially I did come in for the price stuff, but I stayed for the tech. And it took me the 2018 and the 2019 period to really understand that that statement as far as money is cool, but money is just a tool for you to make your life in the environment that you want it to be, right? Mm -hmm. And so getting past that part of money just being a tool, then it's like, well, what am I really in this for? What am I trying to do in the long run? Well, I do still think that this is the pioneering stage, the forefront of what leads us to the Babylon 5 type of money. And I already thought and I had the ideas on how money would end up just being credit anyway. So, well, what makes it the credit? It's digital. Well, obviously we have our forms of digital money now as far as like the credit cards and iPay and all of that on this. But this was going to be something different. This was going to be, quote, for the people. I find it interesting now for the folks who've come in after 2018, how many actually even are aware about the cypherpunk manifesto? I probably could count on two hands the number of people that the number of people I know who've actually read it to get where the mindset and the culture of cryptocurrency in the first decade actually came out of. You know, the white paper talks about what happened with the 08 recession. That was a cultural mindset. And I feel like what's going on right now within the second decade is kind of a shift. But to get back on track, so 2018, I decided to start a company called Trexmark Consulting. I'm looking at doing education in the space as far as doing a DTC thing. So it's direct to customer. I honestly did have the idea or notice how saturated the market was for the education part of the space. Again, like when I got in the space, there was no four point something million YouTube videos that you can find on the subject of Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency. There was no Googly of what, over 10 million in like under three point something seconds when you put in the search term. It wasn't like that back then. Yeah, there was there was no Binance Academy. Right. So (laughs) I knew that it was and it played out that way. So I wasn't a coder. The education thing wasn't panning out the way I thought it was because there was already a bunch of free information and paid information, which was one of the things that I was looking at as far as how the folks who had the money and the quote connections behind them, you probably noticed this about the certifications now. There's something that's been going on a while with the certifications of like, oh, you have, let me not say certain companies' names, but mm-hmm. you get where I'm going for what's going on right now with like how even a CompTIA plays out where, oh, if you get this certification, the quote industry now sees you as a professional or somebody right. who's accredited. I was just talking about this with another guest that I had on and we were kind of talking about how, even though there is an oversaturation of like cryptocurrency education and blockchain education online, there's not like an official really certification. There's certainly not many cryptocurrency classes in colleges or high schools. I mean, there are some college classes. I know I've had some, Drew Hinka is uh, is a guy I interviewed. I know he has an NYU class that he co-teaches about blockchain tech and cryptocurrency, but it's, you know, you're right. There is an overwhelming amount of information on the internet, but there's not, it doesn't seem like there's like a lot of official accreditations in the university settings, at least from my knowledge. So it's kind of a weird, interesting dichotomy there. It is, and I agree with you. I'm on the fence with that scenario, and I'll come back to why I'm on the fence about the academic level certifications or when we talk about, like, well, what's going to be the thing that, quote, sets the standard? Right, Um, right. And there's nothing really right now. I mean, unless you can enlighten me otherwise, I could be wrong, but it doesn't seem like there is something that does set the standard right now other than time spent doing it and just knowledge, right? Like I'm in the crypto tax space and I know that our company has a wealth of cryptocurrency tax information, but that's only because we've been in the space for a really long time and we've been dealing it with it for a really long time. There really isn't anything like that in crypto, is there? All right. So I don't want to say there is quote nothing, but all right, let me break down why I'm on the fence about this. Okay. Because how I see higher education is it is a business. We are marketed certain professions as to say, hey, if you spend X amount of time working for this, quote, piece of paper or this, quote, accreditation, it will guarantee you this type of job. This type of job will guarantee you X amount of this thing called money. Now, the way that colleges work as far as like what their courses are, 
are in part a delayed response into what's going on at the ground level of the economy and the type of work that is needed to be done by people, right? So you can argue that if you want to be a computer engineer, guess what? Google University is there all day and it's free. But if you want to be a doctor, that's a different animal, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, you're talking to you're talking to somebody, by the way, that I understand the argument against higher education. And I'm not necessarily saying you're arguing against higher education, but I've heard it so many times from friends that went to, to trade school, for example, and they're making bank. And, you know, here I am looking at my four college degrees that I have and a ton of uh, debt from that. Exactly. And I enjoyed going to school and I'm proud of my accomplishments. And so I've certainly heard those arguments and I don't regret what I've done. And I think there's certainly value in higher education and college and stuff like that. But the argument is legitimate for sure that we are just paying for a piece of paper. My way of seeing it is kind of like, it's the game, it's the world we live in, and it's, it's kind of like the game and you got to play it, right? Like I have multiple degrees because I wanted to set myself apart. And it so, could, could certainly be a terrible decision. I'm not saying it was the right decision either way, but I just, I definitely have a, a unique perspective when it comes to the higher education argument for sure. All right. So I'm not trying to say you were right or wrong or anything. I don't want to make it sound like I'm disparaging to anyone else who did their master's, their PhDs or anything like that. But In regards to this blockchain crypto thing, what I think that is not necessarily understood by how academics, and when I say academics, I'm not talking about the person who just went to the school to get a degree. Mm. I'm talking about like the higher academic folks who say, oh, let's bring this course in. Let's make it blah, blah, blah of a program, or let's bring it to the level of masters and teaching. Right. What happens in regards to how courses are put together is that, again, it's the time delay that I'm talking about. There was a time in American universities or colleges, we'll say colleges, where you can get a degree, you know, it was a certification for being able to fix VCRs. Yeah. Wow, that's wild. Okay. Think about that. Yeah. And now there was a time in more modern time, we're talking about now the internet age, where you can get a degree for knowing about the internet and what a WAN is or like what lo-fi is right now. But remember, when it first started, it was all new, new. And then the schools figured out, well, we got to start getting into this to put people in who, quote, know about the technology. They had probably a 10-year run on that. And then what happened? The technology became so everyday. That type of degree didn't even make sense. It didn't actually matter if you were um, working, quote, in that field. And then the interesting thing about how this blockchain space works out right now, X amount prior to this, academic institutions worked as the gate guards of information. They dispensed it out once you paid the check. Now, you don't got to pay the check to know how to write code for blockchain, a blockchain. You don't even have to know how to write code. You can just be a program manager. And guess what? If you was already a program manager at a pharmaceutical company or some kind of design company, you just transferring your skill set into a different industry. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would say, in my opinion, there is a slight learning curve where, and I'm sure you would agree that the person certainly will bring those skills over, like a project manager will bring those skills over, but then they still need to have the endurance to be able to get into crypto and to kind of understand it. And they don't have to understand it back and front, but they need to have a basic understanding, at least, and maybe even an intermediate kind of understanding eventually of cryptocurrency, in my opinion. I agree with you on that. What I find now, though, is for where we are now, you don't need to understand X amount of the technical parts of it to be able to function in certain job roles outside of coders. True. I 100% agree with you on that. And that's like a different type of animal now where I know people who were in marketing, didn't know anything about crypto. They got a job, learned everything they had like on the job training. And you would ask yourself generally like, well, what does that have to do with the crypto stuff? Well, the company needs somebody who can deal with marketing, understands how to get the word out there. But here's the kicker for marketing in particular. Marketing as it was done, let's say 20, the 2000s, X amount of the the tactics or the methods that you would use to do marketing as far as being able to get, convert a viewer um, or listener into a actual customer client. I would say the first decade of folks who got into the space don't like being marketed to. 
And so we have it now in this day and age where through our interactions with social media and different things on computers, um, whether you're somebody who has to check like 50 emails in the morning before you actually start your work, you're trained to a degree to push out certain types of digital noise. So when you are on Facebook and you see that ad on a thing, at a certain point, you don't even pay attention to it. It just is like background on the UX part of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, the UI. And so now you have people who are more adamant about not being talked at. And so they have more access to ad blockers. Ad blockers for marketing folks who think that, who use more of the traditional framework of how to, quote, reach out to people, it made your job like X amount harder. And now that you have to figure out, well, how do I connect to somebody about this product or service to where they just don't see me as background noise or they don't see whatever the company is as background noise? That's such an interesting thing. And I think this will be a good conversation because I'm 33 years old. So like I grew up on computers, you know, when ad blockers came about, you knew about ad blockers, you used ad blockers, et cetera. But there's certain applications and certain, I guess, things that you use on your day-to-day internet life that ad blockers aren't going to help you with, right? Like Google, for example. I don't think an ad blocker, as far as I know, doesn't block like a Google ad on Google. Of course, you can use something other than Google. You can use like DuckDuckGo and you can use like the privacy browsers. And then think about like Reddit. I mean, Reddit, if you're on a browser, okay, yeah, your ad blocker is going to work. But if you're on the Reddit app, there might be an ad blocker there. But generally, if you just have the Reddit app, it's not going to block ads. Instagram, right? They're notorious with ads. Uh Facebook, the same. The the social media platforms in general, it's harder. And I'm sure there are custom ways to block ads on those things, but generally it's not something that you block ads on. So there's those avenues, right? To advertise with advertising, I would say. Okay. So let me, let me throw the spin on that one for you. Yes. Yes. You are right. For the average user person of Somi's social media, those type of apps, they definitely are designed that you can't use them with things like, for example, all of my like devices have Brave on it, Brave browser. Mm-hmm. I only touch Google or Bing when I need to do certain things. But other than that, I don't touch them. Even if I do searches, I'll go to DuckDuckGo and when I need to cross-reference it to see what Googly comes up with, that's when I'll do that. Mm-hmm. But other than that, majority of my stuff is through DuckDuckGo. And then the other part is that there's a way to strip down YouTube, but you can't do it through the app. Let me say that. But there is a way to strip down YouTube that you will only get the video. So no backend tracing, no mapping the watch time, none of the other feeds come in. But that's not the average user. Right. And that's, yeah. what, that's even, and, I would say, the above average user, right? Like that's somebody. And like you, you kind of said yourself that you do it. You use DuckDuckGo. And I know there's a lot of people in your same level of tech knowledge that do the same thing as you. I would say I have a similar level of tech knowledge, but I don't actually do a lot of that. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong to do it or not do it, but I'm right. almost on the end of like, I've accepted my fate of the technological overlords. And I know there's a lot of people that hate that, but I personally have And Maybe one day I will rebel against the technological overlords, but for now it's like, Google, you know me. Amazon, you know me. It's cool. Like, just know me. You know what I mean? Like, I just have given up on trying to. But I'll still use an ad blocker. That's for All sure. right. So here's where I'm also on, in a funny position on that, in that there's a level of being aware of technology where you know enough to fear it. And then you know enough to be like, well, that's just kind of pointless. And one of the things that we have seen happen in this last decade and that will intend, increase going forward is people having access to technologies at the ground level, at the end user level, that will allow them to, one day somebody comes up with some kind of across the board ad blocker that's just like a side plug for the Google store. It might have to be that you jailbreak your phone, but guess what, it's gonna be there. And then in another like five years after that, it's gonna be to where it isn't even jailbreaking your phone. Like, I remember what it was like to jailbreak my phones. And I'm, a, I'm an Android person all day. Back in like 08, 07, it was a process. Even to jailbreak a PS Vita, it was a process. Dude, you're preaching now, the fire. You're- <laughs> download the one file, click, 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 boop, boop, under five minutes. Your whole thing is, and you're just like, what? Well, you know what's funny is back in the day, maybe like five, six years ago, 
I remember hearing my non-tech friends talking about jailbreaking Roku sticks or Fire Sticks or whatever it was back in the day to get TV shows. And it's like, man, to hear these people talk about like jailbreaking and they had no technological background, it was so funny to me that they were talking about it. And that kind of goes along with what you're saying of like one day it's going to come to a point where, you know, everybody's doing it. It's easy to do. Actually, I did my whole master's thesis on piracy, actually. So I have a bit of interesting perspective on piracy. Because I think the best way to combat piracy is to release things that are really good value, right? Like Netflix or Hulu, if you can get a good price on it, those are really good anti-piracy measures because they present a good value, right? Like 10 bucks a month for Netflix. If you can afford that 10 bucks a month, it's not that bad. You know what I mean? It's a good deterrent for piracy, in my opinion. Whereas cracking down on piracy with like DRM and DCMA and stuff like that, those aren't very good ways and they've proven themselves to be actually terrible ways to crack down on piracy. So yeah, let's move back to blockchain. I want to ask you, what's your experience marketing blockchain and crypto in the social media, the SoMe world? Okay. So this is the whole thing about the company. This year I was in South Africa, COVID stuff starts happening and it starts to click to me like, Hey, I think I'm gonna need to pivot what I'm doing in the company. For a while now, I've been looking at things going, okay, why do we still have this issue of, quote, market penetration in the U.S. market and Europeans market, blah, blah, blah. One of the things that you hear constantly or heard enough in the first decade was how it's too technical. There's so many barriers to entry. And what I've learned over time is that even when you present people all of the elements to get them past the, quote, barriers to entry, Mm The hardest one to bring down is the mental barrier. So I can give you the money. I can give you the phone. I can give you crypto for free. I can give you access to the internet. I can, you know, give you all of the education stuff. But if you don't have that window open in the mental barrier part of it, all that stuff don't mean nothing. And the way that we get through that is being able to find something that connects at the what I call the quality level, the human level. Stories do that. Stories and finding out like what is something that a person would find interesting or at a certain point, there's a line in regards to this marketing thing. And I'm talking about marketing as a smaller component to the brand of of a company. We have a horrible time in this space as storytellers in order to be able to, quote, build the tribe, build the, the user base, build the community. Because in my opinion, I think that there's a lot of Silicon Valley traditional tech style thinking that's really pushing into the blockchain crypto space. And it is somewhat different than what the original mindset and community value set was. And so understandably, things change, the industry matures, you get more people in. So the mindset is going to be different because they weren't here in the beginning and went through all of the same stuff. But nonetheless, as a company, you still have to figure out how do I get to the folks who would be interested in this product or service? And then you can get into a whole thing about like market fit and all that, which is a whole nother thing. It made me think when I was looking at your Instagram, I saw uh, like a meme you had posted that was, and it speaks to what we're talking about. It was like a Uno meme and it was like buy crypto on Coinbase or something like that. Or whatever, however you play Uno, like take all, select all. It's that Uno Right. And it was basically saying, you know, I'd rather lose at Uno than buy crypto on Coinbase, right? And that's a small population. That's a small, marginal number of us who are in that. That's the old mindset now. Yes. And and I've had this conversation a lot where it's like a philosophical conversation of like, you don't own your crypto if you get it off Coinbase, but that generally isn't the mainstream, right? Like Coinbase is a really solid on-ramp. Even the last guest that I had on, Isaiah Jackson was talking about, he was like, I, I would give one tip and it would be to not buy your crypto on Coinbase. But when I recommend crypto to my very mainstream, non-tech savvy friends, generally what I used to say was go on Coinbase, just start off at Coinbase. If I'm talking to my dad, who's Uh 66 years old, I'm telling him, you want to buy some crypto, go on Coinbase. Maybe there's going to be replacements moving forward where I can say, go on Binance or go on this other exchange or even nowadays Cash App. I I keep bringing up Cash App in in this podcast. I got to contact them. I got got to contact them asking for like an advertising deal, man, because I brought them up 
probably four times in the past, like two weeks on this podcast. But yeah, well, but I would imagine it's the same kind of thing where you don't really own the crypto that's on cash. No, you don't. But the same rule applies as far as like any exchange. If you're not trading, just take it off and put it in the wallet. But you know what's funny? It used to be that the type of advice I would give someone was a real copy paste kind of thing. And 2018 into 2019 really had me revamping how I would give people advice for what they were trying to do. So in this vein of talking about the act, like getting crypto, right? If you're not somebody who's actually going to do the due diligence to write your passwords down, keep them in a separate space, make sure you check every couple of months if you have some kind of hardware wallet, at least try to pay attention at least every couple of weeks or something on what's going on with the company that you have your stuff on. If you're not that person, then damn it, Coinbase is where you're going to go. But guess what? Everything has trade-offs. Everything has trade-offs. So you leave your stuff on Coinbase. The market does what it does. You get a friend from your cousin about, hey, did you see that Bitcoin did blah, blah, blah? And you're like, wait, what? And then are you trying to get into your Coinbase thing? You can't find your password. Or you find a password and then realize you can't get access to the account. And you're just watching the price plummet. It's trade-offs. I tell people this all the time. Based on what you're trying to do, it's trade-offs. Which way do you want to go? Yeah, it's kind of how you look at cybersecurity in general, right? In terms of trade-offs, mm-hmm. you say, do you want convenience or do you want security? Because generally, yeah. you can't have both. You have to sacrifice one for the other. So the other thing, the caveat I would say on that one is you have you sacrifice varying degrees of one for the other. So again, if you know that, like I know one of my neighbors, they're not into crypto, but they were telling me the other day about how they can't do multiple passwords on stuff because they always have the hardest time remembering the, the, the one that they wrote. <laughs> and it's just like, but you know, you can also use the password um, um, safe thing. Right. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, but then I don't remember the one for that. And, you know, I got to watch out. For, I'm just like, all right, I, I don't know how to help you exactly then. And this was like a general tech kind of question um, on password stuff. But you have those people, too. And then you have the extra savvy people who's like, oh, I'm going to use my own USB stick to do the blah, blah, blah encryption on it. All right, cool, cool. There's space for you, too. But jumping back to the point about the marketing thing Mm -hmm. as the element, and this ties into it, is that whatever product or service you're trying to push, you have to figure out how am I connecting to a potential customer, client? What is my connection point to them that relates to the qualitative side? Because like, Humans are funny, funny creatures. We don't use logic as much as we like to tout about being logical and smart and academic and things along that line. Mm -hmm. At the core of how we move is based on a motivation of like fear, pain, happiness, joy, that level stuff. Yeah. Do you remember when Gemini did their bus campaign and they were like order in crypto or something like that? And they had another bus that said something else, too. No, I don't. Like, I, a vehicle, like a vehicle bus, you mean? Yeah, they had buses. They had the um the Van Hool buses. They were driving around D.C. They were going around New York and someplace else. Whoever was the marketing person for that, like they paid them or the company, they paid them a good amount. The community looked at it and said, what are y'all doing? What do you mean crypto without the chaos or something? I mean, there was another line that they had. And I can look at it now, because I remember when I first saw it, I just instantly went in on Twitter on the whole thing. (laughs) But I can look at it now and go, okay, I have a better understanding now because of my experience since then, what Mm -hmm. the marketing person was trying to do. They weren't trying to talk to those of us who've been in the space since like 09, 14, 16, whatever. We already get how to move in the space. They were looking for the people who don't want to do the due diligence to that level, who don't know what it was like trying to go from one token to another token on Ether Delta in 2013. They don't want those people. They want the new wave people who are looking more at this thing as a um, speculative asset. And so I was actually going to say, because you had said you were talking about stories and how telling stories is how you get people. And you're right. I feel like there's no magical way to market to every, and I'm sure this is like marketing 101, but there's no magical way to market to every segment of a certain 
population or a certain uh, viewership or whatever you want to call it. There's no way to market to every type of person. Just like you're saying, there's no way to market to the people that have been in crypto since 2013. And at the same time, with the same advertisement, at least market to those people and market to the people that you're just trying to get in total noobs and that you just want to get into the industry. Maybe there's that that marketing guy or girl that gets paid a lot of money that's going to find that. But I, I think it's probably tough to market to both of those segments. It is. I'm, I'm going to say this. I don't have a marketing background. I don't have a business background. I've just been in this space for a very, very long time, considerably compared to people who came in in the 2018 or 2019 period. And I've been around enough of the community online and in person to notice certain things. I've also done a lot more reading about marketing, branding as the bigger thing, and understanding the psychology of people. If you want to move into this space and you're looking at it from a, let me be a marketer, let me be a copyright person. Like I've heard a couple of people say this, you got to start reading psychology books. It is the straight truth. You start reading psychology books and sociology books, you will have a whole different take on how you do your thing as a marketer, as a copyright person, and as a brand strategist or brand development person. Because you're looking at what you're trying to bring to people's attention at the humanistic level very differently than somebody who's just like, yo, let's just work out what the growth tactics are. So we'll do this like $500 payment on IG and we'll cross it over with Facebook for like a month sprint. And so all you get is these like rapid advertisements showing you something about whatever thing blockchain or crypto related, but is it actually getting the attention of the people to convert over? No, because at this point, they're trained to block it out to a degree. And you're right. I mean, that was my background. My first degree was in psychology. So I agree with you on that. I mean, I always thought psychology was the best groundwork for the rest of my education and just career in general. I thought psychology has really helped me along. So I agree that it's super important. All right, let me throw you in something on the psychology part. One of the books that really like just totally warped my mind is this book called Crystallizing Public Opinion by Edward Bernays. Okay. He's the the nephew to Sigmund Freud. Oh, And yeah, if you read his stuff and you look up like stuff about him, you see how he actually made Sigmund Freud's career in the U.S., in the academic world. His Hmm. nephew and his daughter made his career. Right. I, I remember Anna Freud, I think, is uh, Sigmund yes. Freud. But I, you know, I haven't heard of his nephew, though. I've not heard of him before. But Freud, as much flack as he gets in the academic psychology community, I think a lot of his, like, at least, uh, like, um, psychoanalysis has a lot of credence. You know, he had some weird stuff, but, uh, and he was a flawed character himself, like we all are. But his theory of psychoanalysis is, and his practice of psychoanalysis, I think, has some legitimacy. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing that? And if you reverse engineer it, I guess, you can then think to yourself, what can I do to really prey on those basic emotions like we were talking about before, fear and love and all that stuff. How can I reverse engineer this person to get their attention? Is that what you would say for like why psychoanalysis might be a good marketing? At the core, like we can argue or we can debate, sorry, let's use the word debate about the psychoanalysis being a manipulative thing. So reading that book, and there was another book too that got me that really kind of warped my mind about what marketing is, how you can move it up to the branding level. But at the marketing level, I don't see marketing as a, well, how do I sell you these sneakers or how do I sell you these these shades? How I look at marketing now is marketing is about moving your stance on a subject or on a concept from left to right. Whoa, let's talk about, you know, buying core water. I have to understand that water is being marketed a certain way now where you got to talk about pH balance and things like that and you got to have attractive colors. But I can't just directly just put the bottle in the store and then call it a day thinking that you're going to buy it. I got to now start putting awareness of the importance of hydration and the importance of having water that is a certain pH level as being a good thing towards your health. I'm tapping on different touch points that will cross X amount of a different um, demographic pool. But nonetheless, the goal here is to move their stance in understanding the importance of water. What am I doing? I'm going to have like um, some content, you know, creative person, influencer who does workouts and they're talking about water 
And they're going to do like a three-part thing on the different types of water that are out there and how important it is. What am I doing? I'm talking to the people who do the, the water bottle machines they used to have in offices. And now there's like a special partnership brand thing going with a water manufacturing plant, a bottling plant, and the people who make the machines. What am I doing? I am going to a gym and being like, hey, we wanted to do something where we do like a free promotion thing here because we're trying to get into this market. So I'm not just having it in the 7-Eleven. I'm going to the gym where the workout people are. I'm at the office where the people who don't necessarily work out, but, you know, you got water cooler talk. So you're going to see the water thing there. The people who go through the YouTube channels and watch the people who do the workout stuff or do the extra due diligence and, quote, research for the different types of waters and how, uh, quote, proper balance, pH balance water is better for you than just drinking something that's like, too acidic at whatever number. This is the type of stuff that when I see things now, like I don't watch regular TV. And when I go to friends' places who have like regular cable and stuff, mm -hmm. and I just sit and I watch commercials and I am just flabbergasted sometimes for the signaling things that I see. When I go to a supermarket, I look at like, you know, the packaging. I look at the different things as far as like when you get to where the, the cash out, the cash register aisle is and stuff. All of those are signal inputs to get you to move left or right of a position on something. It's not about the product quote itself. And tying it back to Freud, right? So in the early 20s, what his nephew did was he was taking X amount of his concepts in regards to psychoanalysis and human nature. And he said, well, if you take these concepts and you implement them in particular ways at a targeted demographic, you can have that, that individual or group move in your favor. Now, it's like from the 20s up to about the 50s, a lot of Freud's psychoanalysis concepts and a couple of other sociology people, their thing of how you have to control human nature was heavily in the marketing and in the branding of what it was to be an American citizen, what it was to be a model citizen, what it was to be like the ideal American image. There's a documentary called The Century of Self. Watch that documentary. When, if you get the chance, if you're interested in what I'm saying, and you'll see why I take things the way I take them now. Undoubtedly, and I don't mean to interrupt, but I just want to ask you this as somebody that's in a similar situation as you, and I'm sure there's other people that are like us and that see stuff a certain way, don't you feel jaded sometimes when it comes to like advertising? And as somebody who's trying to market and do advertising, I think it's tough sometimes if you're jaded to the tactics yourself and you're kind of on and you know what those tactics are because you think to yourself, okay, would this work on a population? Would this work on a general population? It certainly wouldn't work on me. I'd see right through it. Would it work on the general population? Don't you ever see that as like an issue? I do. You have no idea how frustrating it can be at times to watch certain things. Like I said, I don't watch regular TV. I'm an internet dude. So it's a lot of just straight Cody and Netflix and stuff. And when I see commercials, and I probably see commercials probably every couple of months, I'm just like, wow, the amount of signaling going on right now is crazy. And when it comes to like what I do, and when I look to work with, you know, a potential client, it's more so about assessing, like, what are you trying to do exactly? If you're trying to growth hack, I'm not your cup of tea. I say it to people all the time. I'm here to help, but I'm not for everyone. And if you're trying to build something that actually, you know, encompasses empathy and transparency, then we're probably on the same page on how you're looking to move about building your brand. A lot of folks will talk about how they want to be transparent and transparency is a high value thing to them. But for the folks who are, I'm going to say, in this transition of the decades, I feel like more bag chasers have gotten into the space. And it's not that I'm mad, quote, at them for transitioning in or nothing, but it's something to watch and see how it changes the character and the community consciousness of the space where we were kind of more focused, or at least we were marketed this thing of how it was, you know, we have these core principles. Mm -hmm. Now you're looking at like sideway acquisitions from traditional finance and technology players of the new startup or the new, new, whatever blockchain thing. And it's not about, well, is this going to quote, help people? Like I said, you have the thing of market fit, like, what problem are you really solving? 
But did you just say, oh, we made this new blockchain and it could do, you know, a Swiss Army knife number of things? What does that matter if none of the things it does actually helps the people? Well, we wanted to make this product so that we can get at least, let's say, 150 million users and then get bought out by blah, 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 Silicon Valley. That's why I, I see that movement really picking up in this space. And I think that this coming decade, we're going to see a slew of acquisitions, mergers or whatever you want to call it. And it's just going to end up being like Microsoft and Google do now, where they just go out and get these new upstarts or these companies that are doing something quote innovative and they just say, hey, here's a paycheck. What are you going to do? And if Google comes to you and says, here's a paycheck, you get like in the States, you get like a, a, a sideways blessing right there when that happens. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, you know, I was an entrepreneur that did blah, blah, blah company. And then Google gave me a check. And so now I got this amount of money and I'm just going to go off and start a whole new thing. It's funny how that plays out in this space, but I don't know if it will play out exactly how things have traditionally gone within that Silicon Valley network. I've seen it in the crypto tax space. I've seen what you're talking about, where there's just so many companies that are just in it for a quick buck. They see an opportunity and they're like, oh man, I could do that. I could make money doing that. In the crypto tax space, and I don't mean to disparage any of our competitors. We have a lot, Bitcoin.tax, the overall software that this podcast came from, we have a lot of competitors. And in my opinion, we're one of the best out there. We were one of the earliest out there. We're, we're great, et cetera. Obviously I'm biased, but some of the competitors that have popped up, man, like I would see them and I would see like what they offer and they'd be like, oh, we support three different exchanges. And you'd be like, what? How do you support th only three exchanges? That's literally who's going to use your service when you support three different exchanges. And I'm not even like really exaggerating. Like those, some of the competitors I've seen have done that. And the funny thing is they usually have a huge marketing budget. They usually, somebody, some numbers game though. Yeah. It's a numbers game. And that like when you, you can tell when certain companies move a certain way with their marketing and advertising where it's like, oh, so y'all are just going to do this until the burnout hits. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. it's like, wild. It's really crazy to watch. There's certain parts of it that like follow, quote, the traditional tech startup stuff. And then there's this new wave or this new elements to it for how it's happening here in the crypto space, um, in the blockchain space too. And as well as the types of industries that will attach on and, you know, we're going to go through our iterations. I, I call this part the growing pains where people are going to, oh, let me start my company. Let me start my company. There's going to be a multitude of me two businesses. This is where I come in in regards to talking about storytelling and branding in the blockchain crypto space. For the most part, majority of businesses that are out right now are a me too business because majority of them are at least two to three steps below the pinnacle part in regards to the production or the creation of a product or service, the value chain. And I had a whole thing about the value chain. But the short of it is, if the majority of businesses coming into this second decade, as far as the blockchain crypto space is concerned, and the bigger society is concerned, is going to have to move into the digital space, that means that the competition scale is going to increase, which means that the, the noise in the marketing branding in the marketing branding um, space is going to increase. So you just saying, oh, we're the number one wallet in the world. What does that even mean, dog? You were a little San Francisco-based startup out of like the warehouse section of some strip mall place. You got your first 50 people. And you were in competition with what? Maybe the other, quote, 40 people that were doing their thing in the bigger area. Now you're really pushing online. Now you're talking about the whole of California. Now you're talking about the East Coast, too. You just increase to where your competition is, let's say, 500 different types of companies. We're just talking about the U.S. right now. Scale up again. Let's talk about Canada. Let's talk about Central America. Let's talk about Latin, right? Latin America, for those who don't know, L-A-T-A-M. Now you scaled up to where you got what, 500,000 people you competing with? Why? Because it's way easier now to make a wallet than it was five years ago. There are literally companies that will just white label you a wallet. You can hire a coder. I forgot the name of the company in South Africa, in Johannesburg. It's like 300 something K. Hell, here's the whole wallet set up. And we got the back end and everything for the payment rails for you. 
from the banks to the um the wallet. That's how easy it is right now. Same with uh, yeah. exchanges, especially with like decentralized finance and stuff like that. You know, there uh-huh. are little developers that make their own kind of exchange even. And it's pretty wild when you think about it. Listen to what happened though. As you go more into the space, your competition scales up on you. And you're talking more than 10x. You're talking more than 50x. If they got a connection, that's your competition. Now, the irony of this whole thing, and it's funny, I was saying this months ago, and then I was listening to one of Comp's, um, sorry, not Comp, Pomp, Pompilianos. I was listening mm-hmm. to one of his podcasts, and I forgot the name of the guy who he was talking to. And this dude said exactly what I was saying months ago. We're going to have access to the technology to be able to co-aggregate better in regards to pushing out ads and doing like live streams and that type of marketing content. But what's going to happen is that everyone else is going to have access to. Why? Because if they're connected, that means they're a competitor. So now, how do you differentiate yourself from your competitor who is not just local to your city, local to your region, local to your country, local to your hemisphere? As I say, how do you get your signal past the noise? I'm not the person who originated that particular signal noise metaphor, mm. but that's where we're going to really ha- see things start picking up in this next decade. I argue it is about being able to show transparency, which is really more about responsibility. But when things go wrong, someone's going to be like, all right, that was me. That was our team. We know what we did. We're here to let you know this is what happened. We'll fix it and we'll get right with you as the client or customer user base or whatever to add on to that i think to be real to a degree of don't puff out your chest so much as a company if you can't back it up right like just be real about who you are to a degree as Mm -hmm. a company and you know if, if you make a mistake like you just said own up to it say you'll fix it say we're working on it and just be real about stuff as opposed to being like cookie cutter with your responses and whatnot exactly like you know i'm not even gonna get on him right now but um (laughs) So the the transparency and the empathy equals trust. I I call it the T plus E equals T. And again, in this blockchain crypto space, as this industry is maturing, like look what happened to us in the 2016 to 2018. There were over 3,000 tokens. And then we like scalped it down to like a little over 1,500 or something like that at a certain point because exchanges started going, all right, you know, this is kind of getting crazy. We're not going to list these anymore because of how scams and stuff is going. Mm-hmm. We're going to have the same ramp up again happen for companies, period. It's going to be a couple hundred companies that do the same thing. But you got to get to that core part of what are you doing to build the brand and not just be, a, oh, I'm here to pump and dump and chase the bag. Right. I look forward to that happening, to be honest. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm on the fence with this situation, too, because what I see happening is You have the people who are going to do all of the different types of growth hack tactics to get people's money. That's Mm going to work to a degree. And then you have the people, as far as how the markets work, for whether the the public, the communities that develop, the tribe that develop, actually look to maintain those products and services as they come out going forward, right? So we'll start out, again, 3,000 plus, and then at a certain point, it's going to condense. I think that this decade is going to give us a haircut uh, for protocols, for the different types of blockchains as far as like how far left we go with open source or how full throttle we go with open source integrated within some centralized things like oracles. But the marketing part of it and the brand identity part and this, this brand strategy thing, a lot of these companies, at least how I see them, they're going to have to start thinking different. And if you talking about, well, I'm a wallet. The first company that I looked that I end up working with is called um, Dinar. Well, they're operating in Ghana. Mm-hmm. And one of the issues that we had in the beginning when we first started trying to figure out, well, how do we do this market penetration thing was me being the American person, me being the Westerner, I didn't understand the cultural dynamics. And I think a lot of the companies that are in the space right now, especially the ones that are going to look to move in from traditional finance, from traditional academia, from traditional tech, they're looking at the general group of folks. I don't believe in a wide net approach to marketing. And so they're not taking into certain accounts the different cultural dynamics and the shifts. I think that this decade is a definite shift from the first decade for those of us who came in and remember the different types of wallets that you had to struggle with to move one thing to the next. 
this newer generation coming in isn't going to care as much about the core principles because they're removed from it. I do think that the recession situation that we have happening now will breed a different segment in the community. I'm going to say it that way. And the marketing folks who are like, oh, well, you know, Google Analytics shows blah, blah, blah. Yo, if you don't believe that numbers may not lie, but the way that the system works to show you the numbers can be kind of illusionary. That's what I think when people usually try to shoot Google Analytics numbers at me. Numbers don't lie, but the people who show you the numbers do. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, especially Uh, if their job's on the line. Exactly. Yeah, no doubt. Well, Uh, hey, so first of all, some great information in terms of just marketing and blockchain. I mean, we had a really one of my favorite conversations I've had in a really long time on this podcast. And so I appreciate that. Definitely, if you have time, we'll have to have you come back on maybe in a month or two and just have another conversation. I think I want to name this episode like Crypto Marketing 101 and Advanced Crypto Marketing or something like that, because that's what it feels like. Honestly, it feels like we had a great little marketing conversation about cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. We talked about psychology and and Freud and psychoanalysis. What a great conversation. Appreciate you coming on track and having this conversation, sharing your knowledge. To use your terminology, can you share what your SOMIs are and uh, how people can get in touch with you if they want to hire you uh, for your consultancy or if they just want to check out your social media, et cetera? Yes. So I'm simple. You can reach me at treksmartconsulting.com. So Twitter oh, nice. is smarttrekking, E-N. It's not I-N-G. And then LinkedIn. LinkedIn is where I mainly promote business stuff. Twitter is just, here's my thoughts. Agree or disagree, you know, let's see where it goes. And yeah, so website is Trek Smart Consulting. It's really simple. I don't really have that much extra stuff going on on there. Just reach out either through LinkedIn or through the website. And if you're serious, I'll get back to you. And like I said, and this is my, this might sound pompous, but I'm here to help, but I'm not for everybody. And if you listen to any of what I said, I definitely said things that don't go with the popular opinion in this space. And that's going to be it for this week's episode of the Cryptocurrency Informer. Don't forget, if you want to read more, go to talk.bitcoin.tax and click on the Cryptocurrency Informer link. Make sure you subscribe on Apple Music, Spotify, and Google Play Music so you can catch every new episode that we release.